through the last of the Ten Commandments this morning. Uh, something some of you have shared with me throughout the series is how unexpectedly applicable and uncomfortably penetrating these have been. Well, this one is no different. Let me read it for you. This is Exodus 20, 17. I'm going to read it phrase by phrase, but I'm going to fill in some space. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Man, their house is nice. Decorated so well. Updated. Big enough to host lots of people comfortably. Our house is embarrassing in comparison. Oh my goodness, did you see the house that went up for sale down the road? If only we could buy it. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Why can't my wife be more laid back like his? If only my spouse was more involved like hers. I wish I had married someone like her. Someone like him. I'd be happier if I hadn't married who I did. Or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey. I need a truck like that. Did you see their camper? Mine is a piece of junk. Why am I stuck in this loser job? Or anything that is your neighbor's. Why do I have such lame parents? His parents are cool. I'm going to be the cool dad. If I could just have a body like that. If I could just be in good health like that. If I could just know what to say like her. If I could just make friends like that. If we could just go on vacations like that. There's not a one of us that doesn't struggle with covetousness. Everybody can identify with something like what I just shared. Trouble is, covetousness dishonors God, hence the 10th commandment. And on top of that, it makes us unhappy. Living in the if-only world is not a fun world to live in. But it's so universal, it can be so subtle, I'm afraid we accept it, maybe don't even recognize it, and as a result, we don't honor God as we should. Our effectiveness as Christians is less than it should be, and our joy in God shrivels as a result. So let's shed some light on this commandment this morning. Three big ideas, and if you're helped by following along on a sermon outline, I got it for you there in your bulletin. Three big ideas. What is covetousness? What are signs of covetousness? And what hope is there for the covetous? What is covetousness? Now, it's not necessarily wrong to notice what other people have. But when we noticed, or when we notice most of us don't respond by giving God thanks for his blessing of others. Thank you, Lord, for blessing that family with that fantastic house. No, what often happens is we stop being thankful 
for what God has given us. We stop being thankful for his provision for us. And we become discontent and we long for what he's given another. This is serious sin. Romans 1 describes all manner of unrighteousness and Paul includes covetousness alongside notorious sins like slander, gossip, murder, hatred towards God. Ephesians 5 says, Be imitators of God, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. Paul says covetousness should not even be named among believers. It shouldn't be tolerated. It shouldn't exist. Why the big hairy? Listen to this, Jim. Just a few verses later in Ephesians 5, he says this. For many of you, or for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I I just want to make sure you heard that. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, parentheses, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Covetousness is a big deal because covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness says, essentially... Maybe not explicitly, but in the heart, covetousness says, I am not satisfied with God. I am not satisfied with God, with his provision for me. I have to have X. And that's idolatry because whatever X is, it's replaced God as foremost in your heart at that moment. So, turns out, breaking the first commandment, coveting, breaks the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This helps us see what a big deal this command is. It might seem like the Ten Commandments starts with a thunder and ends with a whimper. Have no other gods before me. Stop looking at your buddy's motorcycle, right? But they're connected. To have no other gods before him is to say... I will be satisfied with what you give me. I will not sinfully long for what you've given another because you are enough and because you promise to take care of my needs. So this is serious sin. It's idolatry. And idolaters have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, I I said a second ago, it's not necessarily wrong to notice what other people have. Let me also be quick to say it's not necessarily wrong to want stuff. God doesn't forbid all desires. It's not inherently wrong to desire a new house. It's not inherently wrong to want a new car or updated carpets, a boat so that you can enjoy Lake Champlain in the summer, or a nicer hotel for your vacation. God does not forbid all desire, nor does God call us to asceticism, big word that just means severe self-discipline or the avoidance of all forms of indulgence. Forbidden in covetousness is not desire itself. It's disordered desire. It's desire gone wonky. 
And desire gone wonky in at least two ways. Number one, covetousness longs for what someone else has. Covetousness is more than thinking it would be nice to have a better car. Covetousness is thinking I want his car. Covetousness is more than thinking it'd be nice to have a better job. Covetousness is thinking I want her job. It's like what happens on Sunday. I mean, not, well, hopefully it doesn't happen on Sunday morning. But it's like what happens on Christmas morning. A kid opens his present. He loves it. Couldn't be happier until he sees what his brother got. And then all of a sudden, his totally awesome Tonka truck isn't so awesome anymore. He wants that. You know what I'm saying? And if his desire has really got the best of him, he might even say something to mom and dad like, that's not fair. And at this point, we restrain ourselves from taking the child's life early. (laughs) But we do the same thing. We notice what our friend has and we can't help but to want it. And if the desire's really gotten a hold of us, we may not say it's not fair, God, but we believe something of that in our heart. We believe that we should have it. We start to question why wouldn't God give it to us? He gave it to them. And we might even start to think poorly of God as though he's holding out on us. So that's number one. Covetousness isn't just desire. It's desire for what someone else has. Two, covetousness is discontentment. So it's not necessarily wrong to want something. But it is wrong to want something such that you can't be content without it. So it's not wrong to want a better job. But if you can't be satisfied, if you can't be at peace, if you can't pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done in this situation, then it's discontentment. So covetousness is not the mere presence of a desire. It's a desire that will not rest unless it's met. It's a desire that will not be at peace unless it's met. Essentially, it's a desire that says, I will not be satisfied with God and his provision. I must have it. And clearly, that's where you see that link with idolatry, right? At that point, whatever it is that you have to have has become your functional idol. You wouldn't say it's an idol, but it is. It's captured your heart. I have to have this. So, let's just transition and ask the question, how do you know if you're covetous? What are signs that you might be ensnared in this deadly, subtle sin Kevin DeYoung helpfully points out four, and what follows here is largely from him. So helpful. You might be coveting if you hurt others in order to get more for yourself. I saw this at OTS. Uh, Some officer candidates had a nice veneer, but as I watched them over the course of the 60 days, I saw them step all over anybody and everybody to get noticed by that officer, to get an audience with that officer. They had a do-whatever-it-takes attitude. Do you have a do-whatever-it-takes attitude? Have you cut corners to get ahead? Has somebody been hurt by your financial schemes? In your desire to gain, have you stirred up strife or broken relationships? 
Or, or maybe the hurt you've caused is more along the lines of neglect. In your pursuit of the bottom line or success, your family and your church get leftovers. Another sign you might be coveting is a preoccupation with making and accumulating more. So in the parable of the soils, a sad thing happens with the thorny soil. The seed of the gospel is sown. The seed of the gospel is received. It starts to bear fruit in the life of this person. But over time, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things crowd out this fragile plant and just choke it out. The thing is, I don't think anybody wakes up and says, I'm going to give myself to the pursuit of money and stuff instead of God. Nobody says that. That's not, that's not what usually happens. What usually happens is that it just usually happens over time, subtly, inch by inch. You get too busy. You get too concerned. You get too preoccupied with lesser matters as opposed to the most important matter. Sometimes this is what's wrong with our possessions. It's not wrong to own a boat or a motorcycle or a camper, but we have to be careful that what starts out as an innocent form of recreation doesn't become a reason to be out of church or decrease your giving or not support the missionary. Sometimes this is what's wrong with our career ambitions. It's not wrong to move up and move on, but we have to be careful that what starts out as an innocent desire to provide for our family doesn't become a reason to not involve yourself in the lives of your brothers and sisters to be present, to befriend, to serve, to disciple. Sometimes this is what's wrong with our kids thinking about our kids' sports. It's not wrong to want them to have this or that experience in sports. We have to be careful that what starts out as an innocent desire for them to participate in what they love doesn't displace worshiping God as he's commanded us to on the Lord's day. Another sign you may be coveting is an unwillingness to give up what you already have. So maybe, maybe you're not longing for this or for that or for the other thing. But maybe you're clinging to what you have. So maybe you don't spend and buy on needless items, but the, the reason you don't is, is frankly so that you can see your savings account, your, your retirement, or your net worth go like this. Sometimes in more theologically conservative churches like ours, there can be a dangerous elevation of saying no to nice things. New car equals bad Beater equals spiritual, okay? But that can mask all sorts of covetous motivations. If you buy the beater so you can store up more, beware your heart. That's a miserly inclination. If you don't buy the stuff so you can store up more, beware your heart. That's a miserly inclination. If you don't take your family on the nice vacation so you can store up more, beware your heart. If you won't give your kids or your wife or your husband X so that you can store up more or so that you can buy Y for yourself, beware your heart. Or how about this? If you won't share what you have with those who have need, beware your heart. 
Covetousness can be subtle. Another sign you might be covetous is frequent grumbling. Grumbling about what? Well, I'm glad you asked. It could be anything. It could be your house, your spouse, quality or quantity of your possessions, your health, your kids, the general state of your life. It's so easy and it's so natural for us to think that the next thing will satisfy Trouble is, it's always about the next thing. You get the next thing, and then it becomes the next thing that you need. Maybe you've heard the quote from John D. Rockefeller. Somebody asked him, how much money is enough? His answer, just a little bit more. We do it too. We lodge our contentment in obtaining whatever. If only I were married. If only we had kids. If only our kids were saved. If only our kids were through college. If only we were retired. If only we had a particular retirement. So what's your if only? Right? What's your if only? Just fill in the blank. If only I had blank, I would be happy. What's in the blank? What are you chasing? What do you think about when you're mowing the lawn or working out, folding laundry or driving? If it's anything other than God, you're an idolater. Coveting at its root is idolatry. Well, now that all of us are sufficiently condemned, what do we do? What's our hope? Is there any hope? There is. It's glorious. And please just lend me your ear. What should you do with covetousness? Number one, you need to get your mind right. When you covet, you're believing lies. You're believing what you don't have is what you need for the good life. You're believing that what others have is, in fact, what gives them the good life. And you're believing that God and his provision for you aren't enough. You're believing lies. Subtle lies, unconsciously perhaps, but lies nonetheless. And you have got to fight those lies with the truth, two truths in particular. Number one. You got to get your mind right about what true gain is. 1 Timothy 6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. I love these verses because they punch covetousness in the face, okay? Covetousness is a lie that says true gain is stuff, and specifically stuff you don't have. But God's word says true gain is godliness with contentment. And so these verses, in these verses, God is saying to us, Christian, do you want gain? Christian, do you want the good life? Christian, do you want joy and satisfaction? Good. I want that for you too. But stuff isn't it. 
godliness with contentment is. And so what we need to do first is apply this truth, the truth of God's word, to this lie that we believe when we covet. So when we start to feel that hankering for whatever, we need to stop, we need to pray, we need to meditate on this verse, and we need to speak the truth to ourselves. Whatever it is that I'm longing for, it isn't going to deliver what it is that I'm hoping it's going to deliver. Whatever it is that I'm longing for, it is not going to make me happy, at least not for long. Whatever it is that I'm longing for is not going to satisfy me, at least for long. What I really need, what will really satisfy me, is godliness. Character in keeping with God's word. And contentment an acceptance of whatever it is he's seen fit to give me right now. That's real satisfaction. That's real gain, not this. You have to tell yourself that. The second truth we need to focus on is how the story ends. Psalm 73 opens up with this psalmist, and he is in a dark place. He's a godly man, but he is ensnared in lies. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's looking at the world. He's seeing how better off all these ungodly people are. And he says, for they have no pangs until death, essentially carefree life. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Don't get distracted by fat. He just means they have all they need and more. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. This guy has it so bad, it's like he's seeing all of the influencers out there on TikTok and social media, and they've got the, they got the HGTV home, and they got the brand new GMC Sierra, and they're tanned, and they're toned, and they're traveling all over, and he is envious. I want that man And if you read the rest of the psalm, and I would encourage you to do that, you will see how sideways he got with God. He got real sideways. But he got his mind right. You know how? He went into the sanctuary of God and he saw their end. He remembered what's coming later for all those who don't love and obey God. And he remembered what's coming later for all those who do love and obey God. He remembered the end and he cast his eyes towards eternity. And he got a perspective beyond the here and now. Doing that was like a bucket of cold water on his soul and it sobered him. Listen, this life is so brief. Covetousness tricks us into focusing on this small little time called the here and now. And God calls us to look beyond. And when we do that, when we cast our eyes beyond where we are, it helps us to repent of covetousness because it becomes so clear to us how stupid it is to live our few years here longing and pining for the stuff when we could be investing it in the progress of the gospel. And so we have to get our mind right. 
And hopefully it's clear to you that getting your mind right is just a different way of saying repent. Repent of the lies you're believing and believe the truth of God's word. What is real gain? It's godliness with contentment. How does the story of life end? Eternity changes the way you live. So you need to get your mind right. And you need to get in the game. Overcoming covetousness is going to take some work. Four interrelated truths that are going to help you here as you seek to overcome covetousness. Number the first one. Covetousness is learned. That's not what I meant to say. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. Contentment is learned. I am so glad that you're awake. So encouraging. Number one, contentment is learned. Listen to Paul in Philippians chapter four. Not that I am speaking in terms of being in need. That's financial need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, how to have little. And I know how to abound, how to have much. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I know we tend to think of these verses as, I can hit the game-winning three through him who strengthens me. But that is not what this is about. It's about contentment. It's about being able to weather financial stress or financial blessing, either one, through Jesus Christ. And the glorious thing for us this morning is to grab hold of the word that's used twice. That word, learned. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Brothers and sisters, that one little word is a huge encouragement. Contentment is learned. And so what that means is that there were times when the Apostle Paul himself was not content. He had to learn it. It was a process. There were ups and there were downs. He had to repent. He had to pray. He had to ask his brothers and sisters for help. And it's going to be the same for us. We've got to learn it. It doesn't drop like manna from heaven. Hola, contentment. It comes as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It comes as the Spirit of God who resides in us continues to mold us into his image. So if you're not content this morning, in one sense, I don't want you to be discouraged. But I don't want you to make excuses for it and just say, I wonder when God will give it to me. No, I want you to resolve God wants you to resolve to learn it. And the first thing you need to learn is that its substance is Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Those are shocking statements. Whoever comes to Jesus will never hunger will never thirst. What the heck does that mean? It means that Jesus will be enough for you always. 
He's not talking about literal hunger and thirst. You're going to still need to eat and drink. He's saying, I am what will satisfy your soul. I am what you need. In your abundance, I am what you need. In your poverty, I am what you need. In your youth, I am what you need. In your old age, I am what you need. In your parenting, I am what you need. In your marriage, I am what you need. In your sickness, I am what you need. In your health, I am what you need. In everything, in anything, always and forever, loved one, I am what you need. This is so good. Contentment's substance is Jesus Christ. Just think about this. If you have him, you have everything you need. Do you believe that? If you have him, you have everything you need. You have a friend who sticks closer to you than a brother. You have a great high priest who ever lives to intercede for you. You have one who will never leave you or forsake you. You have one who has clothed you with his righteousness and promises to bring you to himself. Holy cow, why are we so discontent? Why are we so covetousness? Because we have taken our eyes off our true treasure, Jesus Christ. And so in our fight against covetousness, we need to do two things. We need to shut off what diverts our desires from Jesus. And we need to sow what focuses our desires on Christ. So first off, we need to shut off, cut off, close off, do away with Get away from, whatever phrase you want to use, whatever diverts your desires from Christ. What is it for you that blows air? Does anybody have one of those things, one of those old tools by the fire that you'd go like this? Everybody's like, no, man, I got a wood stove. Follow me, okay? What is it that blows air on your coals of discontentment? which causes the coals to come alive and become even more content. You need to starve those coals of air so that they die. What is it that stokes the coals for you? Is it HGTV? It's not for me. I'm like, Tiny House Nation, what? (laughs) But it may be for you. Is it curated social media feeds where you think that your friends and others have that wonderful life that's being presented to you? They don't actually, and we all know that. But it still can stoke the fires of discontentment. Do you just need to stop? There's a radical thought. Is it just the snare of compare, you might say? Are you just comparing your life, whether on social media or in your interactions here or with your friends? Are you just comparing yourself to others 
And that is stoking the fire of discontentment because they have X and you don't, or their relationship is this and yours is not, or that, 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 that. Do you just need to stop with the comparison? What, what is it for you that has a tendency to just move you in the direction of starting to have covetousness, covetous desires? I'll tell you what it is for me. It's anything in relation to motor, motorcycle stuff, and it is outdoorsy stuff. Let me just tell you, if you see me go into REI, pray for me, okay? I go in, and I just begin to covet, and I just begin to think, I want this, I want that, I want this. Maybe Christmas, maybe birthday, and my wife's like, dear Lord, I love the man. Help him, you know? What is it for you? What is it that stokes those fires? You need to be careful and possibly just... Shut them off. And then, you need to sow what focuses your desires on Jesus Christ. You need to sow what focuses your desires on Jesus Christ. I got several thoughts for you here. One, generosity. Giving. If you want your desires to move more towards the things of God and godliness and contentment, then increase your giving. That's a surefire way because Jesus says, where your heart is, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if you give more and you begin to lay up treasure more in heaven, your heart is going to be thinking more about heaven. You can increase your giving. And that will actually increase your contentment and decrease your covetousness. So generosity is one. The word of God is another Are you spending time in the Word of God? When it's opened up here and and, and it said the, the, the scripture of the day is Psalm 34, do you open up to Psalm 34 and do you have an expectation that God is going to speak to you? Do you read it later in the afternoon? Do you meditate on it and do you ask God to impress it upon your soul? The passage for the sermon in the morning, do you read it ahead of time? And expect for God to work through it to form you and to shape you. Are you reading your Bible throughout the week because you just know you need God's word? Sow into God's word. Sow into being here. Sow into being at worship. Say no to desires that divert you from being here on Sunday morning and say yes to being here on Sunday morning. But even more than that, say yes to being increasingly involved and say no to things that would keep you from it so that your desires continue to move more towards Christ. Prayer. You have not because you ask not, James says. You ask and you have not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Are you praying and asking God to help you with covetous desires and pursue contentment? Pray. That is so genius. Lead me in paths of righteousness for your sake. Are you praying that in relation to this? Here's just something I don't want you to miss. Sometimes I think we can't, I think we think we can't do anything about our desires. That's a lie. You can do something about your desires. Your desires don't define you. You can influence them. 
You can impact them. You can direct them, not immediately, not necessarily, easily, but truly. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, do you realize that you're being shaped by something? You're being shaped by what you listen to. You're being shaped by what you watch. You're being shaped by who you spend time with. All of these things shape you. And they shape your desires. I want to encourage you to be shaped by God's word. By worship. By prayer. By generosity. So into the things that point you to Jesus Christ. And I want to say one thing to those who are here who are outside of Christ. This is what you want, but you can't manage to find. Contentment. You want contentment. And the reality is, it will only come through Jesus Christ and Him crucified and union with Him by faith. This is actually what you long for. And the enemy has you confused because you think that Christianity is enslavement. It's not true. Christianity is freedom. Right now, you're actually enslaved to your desires for everything else that aren't going to satisfy. Christianity, the gospel, offers to free you from enslavement to those desires and satisfy you through Jesus Christ alone. It's the best deal ever, certifiably. Praise God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Living the life we should have lived, dying the death we deserve to die, rising again, and all who turn from their sin and trust in him are forgiven, cleansed, clothed in his righteousness, and given that which truly satisfies Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you that it has saved us and that it is sanctifying us. And we ask God that you would continue to transform us by the power of the gospel into your image such that we are less and less characterized by longings for lesser things and more and more freed with the Apostle Paul to say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We thank you and we praise you and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.